Good morning. Uh, The scripture today begins in Genesis 7 at verse 6 and goes to verse 10. Noah was 600 years old, and the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his... Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood, of clean animals and of waters that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground. Two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Let's pray together before we receive God's word together. Father, here we are again. Each week you have provided this rhythm of coming together and sitting at your feet and listening to your voice and your word, and I'm so grateful for that. And I'm thankful for each person that you've brought here specifically this Sunday to hear this word. And I just ask that you would help us to be receptive. Please speak to us. Transform us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So we're continuing our trek through Genesis, a book of beginnings. Bring you up to speed really quickly. In Genesis chapter 1, God created everything, the heavens and the earth and every living thing. Genesis chapter 2, God, among other things, God created in a more detailed look. We see how God created man and woman and brought them together. Genesis chapter 3, sin entered the world. The serpent, Adam, and Eve worked together to turn away from God. Sin entered the world. Genesis chapter 4, we see sin and its consequences filtering down to the next generation and beyond. Genesis chapter 5, we get this montage of a bunch of generations all back to back. We see that while sin continues to infect every new generation of humanity, God is also preserving a remnant of faithful people. Genesis chapter 6, everything slows down, and we see that as far as man has spread in creation, as generations have come and, and man has been fruitful and multiplied, as far as man has spread, sin has spread with him. And God looked and, looked and saw the world, and it was just extremely corrupt, Violence, evil, and wickedness pervaded everything. And he decided that he had had enough. And he was going to blot out everything that he had created with a massive flood. But Noah alone stood as righteous and blameless and as a man who walked with God. And so God asked Noah, not asked, commanded Noah, build an ark, build a massive ship, you and your family And a representative sampling of all the animals are going to be preserved on this ark. But everything and everyone else I'm going to wipe out. Now, you're up to speed. Today we continue the story in Genesis chapter 7. We're actually going to be studying uh, verse 6 all the way through the end of chapter 7 to verse 24. And I'm just going to, we're just going to read the story. We're just going to take it in. This history, this real history of God with his people. We'll take in the story, and then I just have one point I want to press upon you from it. Robert read the beginning of this section of the story, and we'll revisit it here briefly, verses 6 through 10. 
Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. Now we need to, we need to focus together. We need to try to visualize these things. We need to try to use our imaginations to uh, remember that this is real. This is history. This happened. Uh, it's not just a general myth that we come around. It's not some legend. This happened. So Noah and his family and all these animals enter the ark, and then after seven days, it all begins. Seven days. I think I've shared with you before, um, when I grew up, we had one vacation per year, and it was a week at the beach. It was Ocean Isle until the house that we were on became beachfront because the the beach eroded and, and the row in front of us got wiped away. Um, and then at that point, we really couldn't afford a beachfront house anymore, and we switched over to Holden Beach. It was our one trip every year, and we looked forward to it so much. And I, as a kid, it was just this magical thing. And so every summer, we would start to prepare. My dad's a very detailed person, a very prepared kind of person. He would start the packing process really early. Um, it'd be almost a week before we were going to leave, and he'd already have things and, at, laid out at right angles, uh, ready to be packed and put away. My job was to clean the van out. We had a, a, a Ford Aerostar minivan, and my job was to vacuum it out and wash it, make sure it was really nice and ready to go. And then the night before, Dad would pack it um, like a, a master Tetris player. If you've ever played Tetris, everything would be perfect in there. We had a cooler that we would cram between the uh, middle uh, bench and the front two seats that was stocked full of food for the, our journey. And I would set up my place with a pillow and like a blanket and my Walkman and my, uh, my glory movie score tape. Uh, that's what I listened to. Um, you would think that we were going to be journeying out into orbit for a year before we were going to return. We were so ready, and I was so ready. And I just remember the anticipation of that. And I think the anticipation increased because of the way we prepared for it. Nowadays, with my family, if we have a trip coming up, usually we're so busy prior, it's like 15 minutes of time to go, and we're like, shoot, we better just grab the dirty laundry and put it in, and we'll go, we'll wash it when we get there. we got to go. And I've noticed how the anticipation is kind of minimized by that a little bit. Yeah, as a kid, you've got nothing else to think about. So for weeks in advance, I'd be thinking about this trip. So as we think about what must this have been like for these real people, as legendary as Noah is, he is just a man. And his family, they were just men and women. So I try to get into their, their sandals here. What must that have felt like? What must that anticipation have been like? Years and years and years and years of constructing this giant ship in preparation for this catastrophic flood, something the likes of which they've never even imagined, much less experienced. And here it's finally arrived, and they enter the ark, and they're in there for a week before it all happens. What must it have felt like? 
What must it have felt like to the people outside of the ark? You know, we know from other scripture, Noah's called a, a herald of righteousness or a preacher of righteousness. And so many believe that while building the ark, perhaps he also was out preaching, saying, there is a massive catastrophic flood coming because of your sin. Turn and repent. And perhaps that was the case, and perhaps the community not only had to deal with this oddity of Noah and his family, and, and maybe people perhaps they employed, I don't know, building this giant ship, but also this annoying message, whether he preached it or just through seeing what he was doing, that judgment is coming. Maybe when Noah and the family went into the ark for seven days, maybe there was relief for the people of the community. Oh, so sick of seeing that goody-two-shoes Noah out building his ark. So sick of hearing his message of repentance. Now I can just enjoy my wickedness, my evil, and my corruption. For about a week, anyway. And then the story continues. Now, let's read verses 11 and 12, and I just want you to notice the precision and the poetry of these two verses. Verse 11, in the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And you see the precision there. The 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month. It was on that day. Now, biblically, when you see that kind of precise date and time being given, you know that this is something of extreme importance in the history of God and in the history of God with his people. This is very, very important. It also imbues this with credibility. Again, this is not just legend passed down from generation, exaggerated a little bit each time until it becomes this big story of a big flood. This is a historical event. It happened, and this is the day that it happened. And then notice the poetic second half of verse 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. Verse 12, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. Those phrases just sort of resonate in your heart when you hear them, don't they? The fountains of the great deep burst forth. The windows of the heavens were opened. There's nothing that makes you feel small than contemplating the great deeps and the great heights. Great depths, great heights. Now, I've never been on a cruise or on a ship out in the middle of the ocean where there's no land in sight. But just see, really the thought of it kind of makes me feel a little uneasy. I know many of you have been out there. I have to imagine that you would just feel so small out there in this great massive body of water. There's great deeps, great depths, great heights. I have flown before. And there's something about when that plane just keeps... Climbing, climbing, climbing. And you just see everything that seems so big, the city of Charlotte, whatever, just keep getting smaller, 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 smaller. Things get put in perspective when you consider these things, when you experience these things. I read that the Mariana Trench, which has the deepest part of the ocean, 
At some points, they're almost seven miles deep. Seven miles deeper than the surface of the ocean. Apparently, there's thousands of different species of creatures down there that we haven't even discovered yet, they think. You know, above us right now, there are clouds five to ten miles above our heads. And our atmosphere, and all the way up to the exosphere, goes up way further even than that. We're just so small. Contemplating the great deep and the windows of heaven helps us remember how small we are. But we see in this verse that God has absolute control over these things. These mighty forces that are so much bigger than us, we're dwarfed by them. So he burst forth the fountains of the great deep, and he opened up the windows of heaven, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. If, if those rains started right now, it means it would rain nonstop with the fountains of the deep bursting forth and the windows just wide open of heaven, rain pouring down all the way from now to December 15th. That would be 40 days. And then we get to the climax of the story, verses 13 through 16. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to his kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature, they went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. They went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, interesting here, verse 16 is usually agreed upon, like if you read commentaries about the Noah and the Ark story, verse 16 is usually agreed upon as sort of the climax of the story. And it's interesting that the author chose two different words, two different names for God. And when you see in the Old Testament, God, capital G-O-D, as in verse 16 there, God commanded him. That's the Hebrew word Elohim. And that name for God has a connotation of might and strength and power. That's what's used of him in the creation account in Genesis 1. So God, in his might and his strength and his power, he commanded this to happen and made it happen. But then the second part there, and the Lord shut him in. You've probably noticed in the Old Testament, often the word, the name Lord is all caps. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That's the translation of the Hebrew word Yahweh. This is God's personal name. This is the name God gave Moses at the burning bush, when Moses said, who should I tell your people sent me with this message? And he said, tell them I am sends you. And that idea of I am, God's just, just the fact that essential to his nature is just that he is. That is captured in that word Yahweh. So God, his strength and his might and his power commanded this to happen and made it happen. God in his personal, relational nature closed the door. What, how did that work? I don't know. The Bible doesn't elaborate. 
Was he there in a physical presence and closed some great big door? Is it that he caused a great wind to blow it shut? But he did it? I don't know. I don't know. This, again, is so mysterious. I don't know how he did it, but I know that he did it. Now, I know that the author is trying to capture just different aspects of God's glory in this story. God commanded it. The Lord closed it. Now we come to our final paragraph of this part of the story, verses 17 through 24. And I want you to listen for two key words as I read these verses to you and as you look at them up on the screen or in your Bibles. The first one is the word prevail. You'll see the word prevail in this paragraph. And that, it means triumph. It's a military, it's a battle word of, of one army prevailing, triumphing over another. So look for that word. That's important. The other key word is a small word, and it's translated, it's either going to be translated all, everything, every, or everyone. It's the same Hebrew word, and it just, it's the idea of a totality. Okay, so look for, look for these two words as we read this together. Verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. The emphasis here, all this story builds up to this paragraph really. And the emphasis is clearly on the fact that this was a supernatural, comprehensive catastrophe comprehensive. The waters prevailed and triumphed over everything, all things, every living things, all the mountains. Imagine that 40-day period while the waters increasingly prevailed over things. Imagine you're one of those people outside of the ark during this. Waters rising up around you, waters crashing down from above you. Steadily, it invades your home and rises outside and inside. The things in your house starting to float around you. Your livestock drowning before your eyes. Nothing you can do about it. You're grabbing your children under each arm. You're, you're wading through this rising water and you see the others around you in your community doing the same thing, scrambling for higher ground. Perhaps there's a hill in your community and you, everybody's going for the same hill. Uh, whatever the ancient equivalent of traffic jams would be that would be happening. 
People abandoning their carts full of their earthly goods because there's just the water is triumphing. It's prevailing. Just save yourselves. Forget your stuff. You, you can't save it. Scrambling up the hills as fast as you can, but the water is prevailing over the low hills. Perhaps you staked your hopes on this one hill. The waters are prevailing, and there's no hope of you going down to the valley anymore to that larger hill because the waters have prevailed over the valley. But maybe in the distance you see families and people scrambling up the higher hill, maybe a a cliff, uh, a mountain, people scrambling up with their kids, their young, their elderly. But the waters are still prevailing. They're prevailing over the trees. They're prevailing over the mountains. I wonder who was the last person. I wonder who was the last person to have a foot on dry land before the waters prevailed. I wonder how long people floated on the surface of those prevailing waters before they all, exhausted, had to give up. It's terrifying. God opened up the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven, and the waters prevailed and conquered and triumphed over everything, all things. Imagine the people on the ark. After the 40 days, it says that, that the flood was sort of uh, amassing and prevailing for 40 days. And then it says there was this 150-day period where the waters just remained in their victorious state over everything, including the mountains. High enough over the mountains, I think that cubits that was mentioned may be about 15 or 20 feet over the, the, the tallest mountain peak so that the, uh, the whole of the ark wouldn't be capsized by it. So imagine the people on the ark. Some of you who have been on cruises or deep sea fishing, you know that, that sense of no land in sight? Now imagine that, no land in sight, but also knowing no land anymore in existence. There is no dry land. Imagine the eerie calm out there for 150 days. It's just bizarre. Now, through this passage, it lists out the different creatures that were blotted out. And it's interesting that they're listed in the same order that they were created. Just as God created all these things, he blotted them out. And just as God was powerful enough to create out of nothing, he was powerful enough and had the prerogative, his, his right, to erase it all. He created and he decreated, he uncreated. He returned the earth to where it began. And this isn't projected, but I don't know if you remember Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, I'll bet you remember, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. But do you remember verse 2? The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So in this murky, hazy history of the creation of everything, it seems like it started off something like what Noah and his family would have experienced here, covered in a deep surface, covered in waters. God uncreated his creation. And that's where our story leaves off for today. Now, next week, we come back and we get the backside of this whole story and we get the 
the recreation and the positives, but our story here today ends there. Verse 24, and the waters prevailed on the earth for 150 days. And here I come to the one point I want to leave you with. Okay, so if if story time made you sleepy, uh, story time is now over, and I have one point I want to press upon you today for this week as a church. And the point is very simple, and it's very obvious, but it's just this. God is powerful. God is powerful. And I know that's obvious, and, and maybe it doesn't seem helpful. Um, you know, we get tangled up in complications in this world that seem so big and so urgent that it seems like the only way God can help us is if he speaks directly to this specific situation. I need a scripture that tells me what to do right now about this thing. Nothing else is going to be helpful to me. But perhaps... That way of thinking is all wrong. And perhaps what you need most this morning, you specifically, with whatever's going on in your life, perhaps what you need most this morning is just this reminder. God is powerful. God is powerful. Consider the, we talked about heights and depths. Consider the heights and depths of God's power. He is capable of awesome things and awful things. He is capable of terrific things and terrible things. His power is three-dimensional, fully orbed, and beyond our understanding. Consider how he created everything and then he uncreated everything. And we'll see next week how he recreates everything. And if you know the New Testament and promises to come, that he's going to newly create everything. There's going to be a new creation. Consider how he formed Israel, if you know the history of God's people Israel. How he formed his people Israel, gave them the promised land through all kinds of spectacular signs and wonders. And how he scattered his people into exile and removed them from that land. Consider Jesus Christ. Consider the amazing miracle of the incarnation. God comes to be with us. And then consider the horrors of the crucifixion. Consider God's power in Jesus Christ. The incarnation, that miracle, born of a virgin. And then the horrors of the crucifixion as he was killed on our behalf. And then the glories of the resurrection as he was raised from the grave. And the promise of his return in full power and glory. Consider God's power in the church. He established his church through simple people preaching the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. He lived perfectly. He died on your behalf. And he arose from the grave. Trust him as your Savior. Follow him as your Lord. And you will be saved and reconciled to God. That simple message, the church exploded into existence. He created and established his church. And then he scattered his church. If you read through the book of Acts in persecution, it was persecution that scattered the Christians with this gospel all around. And now we have these promises that 
through simple Christians like us, the kingdom is growing. Perhaps the message for you and me this morning is just remember my power. Maybe that's what he's whispering to you. Remember my power. You know, when God's people are afraid in the Bible, God whispers to them, remember my power. You know, when Moses had led God's people out of Egypt after 400 years of slavery, all these amazing signs and wonders, the ten plagues, they reached the Red Sea, and all seems lost as Pharaoh and his armies descend upon them and listen to God's message to his people while they're afraid. In Exodus 14, 13 through 14, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. All through Scripture, this message echoed over and over again. When God's people are afraid, he says, remember my power. Don't be afraid. Just stand still and trust me. When God's people are suffering, God whispers to them, remember my power. You know the story of Job. He is the epitome of suffering in the Bible. And the whole book of Job is him talking with his friends, trying to figure out this suffering that he's going through. And then finally, in chapter 38, God steps in and speaks into the situation. And do you know what he says? I'll read you just a few verses of it. Job 38, starting at verse 44. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out of the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. So to Job and, and the most intense suffering ever captured in the Bible, he lost his family, his health, everything he owned. God's message to him is, remember my awesome, awesome power. When God's people worship, God's message to them is, remember my power. In the Psalms, which is sort of the hymn book of ancient Israel and remains so for us, You could pick almost any psalm for an example of this, but I'll just read to you Psalm 68, verses 32 through 35. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. Ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. When God's people need wisdom, he whispers to them, remember my power. Remember the story of Solomon. When he's made king of Israel, he says, I feel like a little kid. I'm overwhelmed by this task, this responsibility. My one request is, would you please give me wisdom? 
God responded in giving him great wisdom, and a lot of it's recorded in the book of Proverbs. Now read one of those to you. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. When God's people are afraid, when God's people are suffering, when God's people worship, when God's people need wisdom, God's repeated message is, remember my power. Remember my power. And perhaps his message for you this morning is, remember my power. Now, I'll close with this really brief story and one more scripture. Um, This may surprise you, because I am a pastor, but even I will go sometimes without having a quiet time. And I'll, I'll wake up in the morning, and the first thing I'm thinking is, I've got to do these seven things before breakfast, and I get up and I just get going, and I just get to work. Maybe I'm prayerful, maybe I'm not. Well, I had one of those weeks this last week where just Monday morning, Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, I just got up, I just got into it, I just got into the work of it. Good work. But I just was busy, and I was working really hard. And through the week, um, you know, as your pastor, my mind scans over the church back and forth, I think, and pray about you people way more probably than you realize. And there's a lot of really encouraging things going on among us, and there's some discouraging things going on among us. And as the week went on, the more and more I was fixated on the discouraging things going on among us, these problems, these issues. And I'm the pastor, and I've got to fix it. I've got to figure out what to do here. And so I think of these little ideas, and they each seem so feeble and puny in the face of what we need to see happen. And I honestly got very, very discouraged. Well, somehow through that, I believe probably the Holy Spirit reminded me, you know, you're not even walking in the Spirit at all this week. You're just walking in your flesh and you're trying to act like you're God and like you can solve everything. Why don't you just put down your work and go and pray about all this and talk to me about it? And so I did. I dropped my car off for an oil change uh, over here in Mint Hill And I got my Bible and my little journal, and I walked uh, down that sidewalk that um, uh, goes in front of the, I can't remember the name of the neighborhood, but out in front of Harris Teeter over there, and there's some benches on that sidewalk. And I looked for one in the shade, and finally I sat down, I opened my Bible. And uh, the, the way I read my Bible right now, there were three chapters that I read, one from the book of Jonah, one from the book of Acts, one from the book of Ephesians. And from all of that, the consistent message to me, from God's word, was, remember my power. I'm the one that sent my prophets to my people. I'm the one that formed my people. I'm the one that gave the prophets the message to say. Some of those prophets were like Jonah. Jonah didn't even want to do it. It wasn't through Jonah's power that anything great happened. I'm the one that forms my church. I'm the one that sent Peter to Cornelius and prepared Cornelius for it. You may not know what I'm talking about, but maybe you do. It wasn't Peter's grand idea or Cornelius's. I arranged all of that. I'm the one who is doing spiritual things among you and your people that you can't even fully understand. So get over yourself. 
I've given you a little slice in this. Be faithful in that and rejoice. I am at work. And I am powerful. Now, it was very, very deeply encouraging to me. And I want to read you the, the last part of the last of those three chapters. And this will close the sermon. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. Here I am thinking, how can I get the younger generations of our church to come and get involved? How can I boost attendance on a Sunday morning? Okay, these weakling little thoughts of mine. Listen to how Paul prays. He writes to the Ephesian people, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Filled with all the fullness of God. I don't even know what that means. I mean, I have an idea, but filled with all the fullness of God. How quickly, when I wasn't walking in the Spirit, how quickly I settled for just hoping that attendance might be a little higher. Forgetting that God is powerful. And he can bring about something like this, that he can fill you with all the fullness of himself. He can root and ground you in the love of Jesus Christ. And then this, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. God is powerful. He's so powerful. And whatever you've got going on in your life right now, fasten that truth to the forefront of your thinking. God is powerful. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace toward us because we know that we are more like those people that drowned when you blotted out your creation than we are like Noah. On our own, we are more like those evil and wicked and corrupt people than we are like the righteous, blameless Noah who walked with you. So thank you for your grace toward us through Jesus Christ. And thank you for preserving this history and reminding us that you are powerful. Please expand our capacity to understand just how powerful you are and help us to live in light of it this week. In Jesus' name, amen.